Good morning. Greet you again in the name of Jesus. I've been told that the fastest way to lose 10 pounds is to cut off your head. It doesn't take a scientist to know why that doesn't work, of course. Because all nourishment comes by the way of the head. Not only does the food go in there, that's where the central nervous system headquarters is. And uh, that's where, you know, as, you, as it were, your CPU is. It's what's what makes everything run. If you have no head, you have no direction to give to the body. The title of my sermon this morning is, Don't Lose Your Head. Our text verse is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. It says, and not holding fast to the head. Thank you, Walter. Uh, <laughs> how long do you want to be here? <laughs> Colossians 2, verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints, and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So who is the head? And ahead of what? Just a couple of verses. One from Ephesians 1 verse 22. And he gave him, he gave Jesus to be the head over all things to the church. Ephesians 5.23 for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 2, and um, <clears throat> verse 8, we'll see who he's talking about. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the, the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So we're talking about Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So we find Christ as being the head, um, both of the church and of the principality and power. And uh, there's some place, and I can't remember where it is, where it gives, gives me the idea that perhaps that was given to him after the resurrection, after he had accomplished his work here on earth. Uh, even, the, even the part of the principality and power, and I can't tell you where that is right now. But, uh, so my question is, when, uh, sort of a side thought, when Satan came to Jesus and, and tempted him and uh, told him that I will give you all of this if you will bow down and worship me, was this a setup of Satan, a, 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 a way that he was trying to get Jesus to relinquish what was going to come to him, take a shortcut, as it were, so that Jesus would be brought under Satan? I think it was. I think it was a, it was a, a real setup of Satan. And, and, you know, that is, by the way, this is, again, a side, but that is the way temptation often is. Satan is trying to get us to get something ahead of time that God has prepared for later.
And in the process, he gets control of you. The uh, impetus for this study came from the verse, uh, the phrase of the verse that says, many shall say that I am Christ. I'm going to turn there just briefly, and that's Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, I think it factors into the subject here we're talking about. Verse 4. So they just asked him, uh, when are these things going to be? The things that Jesus had, had talked about. And, uh, and what shall be the sign of that coming and of the end of the world, or the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And um, so the, the question is, uh, do, do people actually come and, and say, I'm, I'm Christ or I'm Jesus? Yes, maybe. I mean, it says in verse uh, 24 of the same chapter, for there shall arise false Christ. And false prophets. Well, we see false Christ and false prophets. So the one is claiming to be Christ, the other has something to say about him in a false way. And I think probably probably that latter is, is much more what we will deal with today. So how will we recognize that? I think one of the things that these do is they claim... Um, a further or a new revelation of God, of Jesus. Jesus said, many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Now, um, not sure if that always means um, taking Jesus' place, sometimes it may mean speaking on Jesus' behalf. If, they, if he's coming in Jesus' name. So it seems to me we have two entities. We have people who are pretending to be Jesus or be Christ or be maybe even, maybe even the, t the term... Well, see, there's, there's one verse that says, uh, many shall come in my name. This was a parallel passage saying, I am. Now, the, the translators put in the word he, but even that is not in the passage. So, I am is a term for God, but maybe it could also be something that's saying, I am what? A blank. Fill in the blank. I am something that you, are, you need to, to be listening to. Even the or even the uh, the name Christ or Messiah is an epithet of Jesus, and if I understand right, it, it means that uh, it's something that's that's used in place of his name. 
giving a talk telling about who he is so instead of saying Jesus the Messiah we say Christ and and that's insinuating that that the two are one so when when uh, people come in Jesus name and say I am Christ or I have a message from him um, what does that look like? One way I think is is saying that I'm bringing a new revelation of Jesus. Joseph Smith did that, and um, from him come the Mormons. You know, they say a lot of good things about Jesus. They they hold him in honor. But do they? You see, when you have, when you are bringing a message that is not of God, that is not God's message, then who are you really honoring? Another thing people may say is, I am his message and I have the exclusive truth. Or um, if you want to serve Jesus, you need to do it this way. Or ours is the only true church. Some people do this by stating it specifically. Some people, some churches don't state it specifically, but they act that way. Some are very exclusive in relating to other groups that have no major difference in critical matters. Sometimes identities are found in be, not being like somebody rather than in following Jesus. They are groups that focus on an individual or on a group of individuals or the leader. Everything rests on or everything rests on the leadership. Rather than Jesus being the head and the rest of us all contributing parts of the body. Another way I think is that there can be a focus on a particular truth to the exclusion of the rest. That is an unbalanced focus on Scripture, which is, by the way, a common tendency of church groups as a whole and something that we need to guard against. This may not necessarily make this church a false church, but... Um, I believe it does, it does take away from Jesus being the head. Something else has become, has taken the place of the head. And so I tell you again, don't lose your head. Now, if we could turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2. I've been a little uncertain whether to read the whole passage. Um, I think maybe I'm going to let you read the whole passage at home. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick out particular parts of the passage that carry the thought of the passage. One of the things that I found confusing about reading a passage like this is that there's, there's a number of um, uh, pieces in it that that are there to either clarify or to enlarge the the um, 
the concept, but it's, they're almost like parenthetical phrases. They operate sort of the same way as parenthetical phrases is that when you put the parenthetical phrase inside and then try to read it all as one, you sort of lose the train of thought. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes if you read something without a parenthetical phrase, you can sort of get the gist of the, of the um, concept a little better. So I think I'm going to read just those parts um, for now. Um, I think I am going to read verse 2 and 3. Now I'm going to read the first three verses also. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches and the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father and of Christ. He wanted them to be comforted, to be tied together, to understand the mystery, to have the full assurance of what God had done for them, in whom, he's talking about Jesus now, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's what he wanted for them, to be rooted, to be established, and to abound in it. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, or a great persuasive argument, and not according to Christ. Second uh, Corinthians eleven three talks about the simplicity of of Christ. Um, it, it reminds me of of cars. Um, I had a had an old car that if you wanted to get warm, you pushed it up, and if you wanted to get cool, you pushed it back, and if you wanted the fan to turn on, you turned it on. It was simple. It was it was. A no-brainer. I've got a Honda out here, and you almost have to have a uh, almost have to have a degree in, to figure out how to get the heat turned where you want it to go. It is not it is complex, and um, and I know it's supposed to be helpful, and sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's not. And and you see, sometimes religion is that way. It can be so complex that we don't get it, but the the the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is simple. While it is, while it is deep and it's, it's amazing and you can study into it and never get the whole thing, the gospel is simple. God wants it to be simple. And when we make it into something it's not, then um, we've lost our head. All right, back to the passage. I'm going to go back to um, verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit and not according to Christ. 
that is, displacing him as head. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Verse 11, in him you were circumcised. You were raised with him through faith. Verse 14, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in things that are fulfilled in Christ. Verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to worldly regulations? Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 1, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, that is, earthly things, earthly methods, earthly ways. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, Jesus is where our identity, our justification, and our righteousness lies. The key concept here, I believe, is that Paul is concerned that the Colossians allowed Jesus to be the head of the church. The one giving the direction, the one giving life, the one giving health and unity to the body. And when these things come from other sources, instead of through him, then we have lost our head. Jesus has much competition. And often I believe that he is the head of the church in name only. Verse 23 tells us that there is much that looks wise, but does not really accomplish the intended purpose. King James says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you don't know any more than you did when you started. So I'm going to read it in a, in a translation that I can understand. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The things that Paul spoke of in this passage, I believe he spoke of because he believed that they will either allow Jesus to be the head or they will replace him in that position. And that's why he was addressing these things. So the question for us is what is the role of the head? And I would like to probably reread some of these verses as we go and talk about that. Verse 7, it says, we are rooted. 
rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. What, is, what does it mean to be rooted when something is rooted? When something is rooted, it's connected. It goes down to the life-giving source. It brings belonging and brings nourishment. And so the nourishment that we receive needs to come through the head in relationship to the head. We are built up in him. He is the foundation. We are the building. We are out here working on this, uh, on this uh, wall out here that you don't quite see yet. But it's, it's uh, the first part of it was putting in a foundation, a foundation that was going to hold, that was going to last. Everything else that the, the durability and the, uh, the long-term benefit of this wall is going to depend on this foundation that's being poured out here. In the same way it is with our life in Christ, unless we are, unless we are firmly um, built upon the foundation, it won't last. It won't stand the test of time and uh, the other things that are thrown against it. Verse 11, we are circumcised. In whom ye also are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. <clears throat> so it's a sim a symbolic for our sins being cut off, our sins forgiving, and a sin losing its power, its grip upon our life. And that's carried on into verse 12. Buried with him in, uh, in baptism. And so that uh, the, the, the buried has to do with, with, with death. The death of the old man. Where sin loses its power. It, it loses its grip on us. And then... And then he goes on to say, and we are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. That is, we partake in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection becomes our resurrection. Because of that resurrection, we can have power. I believe this, uh, you know, sometimes... As we uh, look at these things, we ask the question, we say, well, you know, if this is true, then why do I still struggle with sin? And I think the reason is because there are three parts to us. There's body and soul and spirit. And if I understand this correctly, the, the spirit has been saved. When we're born again, our spirit is saved. There's a part of us that has changed immediately right now there is another part of us our soul I'm going to call it our mind our will our emotions and probably a lot more that I don't understand um, the, the the part of us that makes choices in life that is being changed as we walk with Jesus Christ as he is our head and as we take we take uh, direction from him 
Those parts of our life are being changed. God touches these things in our life and he touches the pride and he touches the, uh, everything else that, that doesn't belong there and he says, this got to go. And so those things are being changed and, and, and it's reflected in the verse that talks about being changed into his image from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. Then there's a part of us that, that will not be changed. It's our body. Our body is still in death. It still, it still hurts. It has all the other ailments that bodies have. And um, there are natural desires in the body that, uh, that cry out for, for fulfillment. But you see, as, as our spirit, which is connected to God's spirit, is on top now instead of on the bottom, it takes precedence. And it, it, it works its way down into our, our soul and our decisions and all that and comes down. And Paul says he beats his body into subjection. How does he do that? He does it by the Spirit of God, through his spirit, through his choices that works down to his body. But you see, our body is not going to be saved until that day that it's, that it's, uh, it's uh, resurrected and, and we are given new bodies. And so that's why, that's why we have some of that tug of war happening inside of us, I think. And maybe y'all can help me. Maybe I'm missing something. But that's, that's how I see it. I've come to understand it. So we're, we're built up in him. We are circumcised. Our sins are forgiven. We're buried with him. We're raised with him by faith in the operation of God, and so, we, so that allows us to walk in freedom. We are nourished and knit together, verse 19, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. We are knit together and nourished. That is, he is the source of our spiritual food. He is the source of our unity. Unity that comes in other ways is not true unity. The unity of the spirit is what the Bible talks to us about. And as the spirit works with our spirit, works with our choices, and we work together as a body, then it works itself out in practical ways as well. Grows with the increase from God. That is, it is a source of spiritual life. What supplants Jesus' position as the head of the church? If we're going to keep our head, we're going to keep him as our head, then we need to ask the question, what is it that gets in the way of that? Well, verse 8 says it's philosophy and empty deceit. It's things that sound good, but they're empty of power. They have no power to resist the passions. They are deceitful. They're not really truthful. They may sound good. You see, logic and feelings do not decide truth. God's word decides truth. And that's where we need to go back to for our truth. The traditions of men, verse 8. Um, 
usually a fleshly focus instead of a focus on Jesus. There is a difference, I will say, between uh, applying scripture and useless tradition. If we have no application of scripture, I'm going to say it the other way. If we do not apply scripture, then, then um, we have no practical outworking of what God gives us and God asks of us. On the other hand, a good, a good application, whether personal in your family or in the church, can easily morph into something um, into a useless tradition with the passage of time. What, what, is a, what is an honest effort of our generation in applying scripture can very easily in our children's generation morph into a useless tradition. And that's why I believe that it's important for each generation to somehow step back and look at the word of God and ask the question, how does this apply in my generation and to make it theirs? Don't ask me how to do that. But it's something I believe that, that needs to happen in each generation if the church is going to be viable from generation to generation. I think it's one of the challenges of, of, our, of our, I'm looking at people my age now. It's the challenge of our generation to understand how to, to take the things that we have taught and be willing to allow the next generation to apply them in ways that don't always feel quite right to us. Because at this stage in life, we get pretty stuck. We've applied it. We've figured it out, and this is how it is, and this is the way it should look. And the next generation comes along and says, I don't know what y'all are smoking. Isn't that true? Sometimes they need to hear from us, and we need to hear from them. It somehow needs to work together. And um, it's, it's, I don't think it's my strong point to know how to do that. I'll be honest about it. Um, but it's just been a burden of mine to, to ask the question, how can, we, how can we do that in a way that the principles of God continue to go from one generation to the other? You see, our, our application don't look the same as our parents either. And their application doesn't look the same as their parents. It's not going to. But there needs to be an application of Scripture. And I'm not telling you that it all has to be done in the church. But I'm telling you that the Scripture needs to be applied. The next generation needs to obey the Scripture in a way that is right for their generation. This brings me to a concern that I have about how we view and handle our accountability program. 
And I ask you the question, is our focus on man or on Jesus? And this doesn't apply just to that. This applies to lots of things in our lives. It applies to things in the way we do family, train our children, I'm sure, and a whole lot of other things. But do we do right because of someone that taps us on the shoulder or because of our love and fear of Jesus Christ? When our fear and our root reason for doing what is right is becomes because of fear that somebody is going to know something, then that person has become our God. Are we one body? Does our, is the body supposed to communicate with itself? Absolutely, yes. But we do have to remember when the body, and I'm not sure how far this applies in all the rest of life, but when the body, when my fingers communicate with my toes, it does flow through my head. Uh, but I believe that the program will only be successful when we, when we learn to point each other to our head and not to ourselves in the church. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Verse 1 and 2. Therefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy which was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Let us lay aside every weight, the thing that holds us back. Let us run with patience. Let us patiently run. But let's do so by looking to Jesus. Because if he's not our focus, if he's not our goal, we're going every which way. We have to have him as, as, the, as the object of our goal, what we're shooting for. Verse 19 again, and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, have nourishment ministered and knit together increase with the increase of God. How is that focus exhibited, the lack of focus? Verse 16 goes on to talk about that. It uh, reverting back to the requirements of the law, which are fulfilled in verse in uh, in in Christ. Those things were a shadow; they pointed forward. The real thing is Jesus. So we can revert back to those things: false humility, um, pride, and humble actions. And excuse me for using an example that has always stuck out to me as a child. And um, 
and, and I'm sure this is not nearly the only example, and, and probably there could be good reasons for this as well, but somehow it's always struck me when I saw a shiny black car that was black for religious reasons. Especially high dollar, new, expensive cars. False humility. Ways of, yeah, let's just leave it at that. False spiritual experience. Likely the worship of angels was, uh, was something that was an issue at that time. I don't know. Um, sort of the concept that uh, I understand what nobody else understands. Oh, and, and I saw this ad not too long ago for this. Uh, they, they discovered this holy anointing oil. And if you just had this whole holy anointing oil and you used it in your church, it would bring in the, the, uh, the spirit of God into the church. And it was going to, you know, this, it's going to be this great spiritual breakthrough. Fleshly stuff. Fleshly stuff. This is not of the spirit of God. It's a physical focus. Taken from verse 19, when, uh, when, when the head is not there, it is not knitting them together in a life-giving way. It says that Jesus, when Jesus is ahead, he knits us together in a life-giving way with joints and ligaments. You see, joints and ligaments give stability but flexibility. A fleshly focus usually ends up with either no structure or it has one that's welded together in unmovable, inflexible deadness. Another, another exhibition of this is when unity is based on a person or an organization rather than on Jesus. When it is not growing in grace that comes from the head. See, we are to grow in grace, and that grace is to come down from Jesus. Growth is based on a person rather than on Jesus, and then, then we have lost our head. So there's, I think we can all look to situations and say, well, they've lost their head. Sometimes those things get very close to us, and we grapple with how to deal with situations. And so I'd like to talk for just a moment about the way we respond to those who lose the head. We can declare and say, I'm not going to follow this bunch. And we can end up being just like the people that we avoid. Just in a different way. <coughs> we can become the one that says that thinks that wisdom dies with me and just become like the people we reject. Or we can keep our eyes on Jesus. We can stay connected to him and have a place of belonging. We can be built up in him and have a firm foundation. We can trust in his blood and we can have our sins forgiven. 
we can reckon ourselves dead to sin and take up our cross so that sin loses its power. We can trust in his resurrection and have power to walk in freedom. We can allow him to be our source of life and unity so that we can value his body in whatever form it comes. We can seek, we can believe in him as a source of spiritual life and vitality. And we can set, seek and set our mind on those things which are above. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, don't lose your head. That's how